Morning, church. How is everybody this morning? I want to welcome you all. I'm glad that you've all chosen to be here with us this morning. And um, if you're joining us for the first time, uh, we're in week two of our Christmas series. That's right. It's not Thanksgiving. We've started our Christmas series. But it's the second week of it in which uh, through the series we're going to go through Jesus' seven I Am statements through the Gospel of John. And uh, if you missed last week, last week Brandon um, started off with uh, in John chapter 6 with Jesus' statement of I am the bread of life. And in that, Jesus had just fed the 5,000, so he had a multitude of people that were following him and coming to him, not because they wanted to Jesus, it's because they wanted their bellies filled. They just got fed, so they came with empty bellies wanting to be filled. And Jesus tells them, I'm the bread of life. If you come to me, you're never going to be hungry again. You're never going to thirst again. And he tells them, you will live forever if you come and feed of me. So here this week, we're going to jump two chapters forward to chapter 8. And we see there in chapter 8, John tells us in verse 12, he says, Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now that statement on its own is a huge statement. In and of itself, it's, it's, it's huge. I know it's kind of anticlimactic then that I went straight to the statement at the very beginning of the message, but it is a huge statement if we understand the symbols of light and darkness throughout Scripture. In the Old Testament, you see the symbol of light as, as God's salvation, His purity, His goodness. The symbol of, of darkness is, is evil and being lost and being confused in this world. But I'm going to back up a little bit and I'm going to paint this scene of where Jesus is at whenever he says this. Because if we, if, we, if we really grasp the context and where he's at when he makes this statement, it gives much more depth and weight to what he's saying and the claim that he's making. So back in chapter 6, uh, Jesus was in Capernaum, and then he leaves Capernaum, and he's moving in and about Galilee, and he does that for about six months. He's just moving throughout Galilee, and he's teaching uh, and doing certain things in Galilee. And then about that time, after about six months, the Feast of Booth was at hand. It says in, in, in chapter 7, verse 1, it says the Feast of Booth was at hand. So the Feast of Booths was one of three festivals that the Lord, that God said in the law, commanded all the Jewish men to go to Jerusalem to see this feast. So Jesus, from Galilee, he goes to Jerusalem for this feast. And the feast, it was the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles, and it was a seven-day feast. And it says there in chapter 7 that at the middle of the feast, Jesus went to the temple and he began teaching. So this particular feast, all, the, all three feasts, God instituted to remind the people of his goodness, his faithfulness, and what he's done for them. This one in particular is called the Feast of Booths because when he was leading them through the wilderness to the promised land, the people stayed in booths. They made these makeshift booths out of light branches and leaves. And that's what they would stay in as shelter from the elements. So here at this feast in Jerusalem, you know, the Lord commanded them to stay in booths. If in the rural areas and even within the cities, they built these booths and they stayed inside them. And then there was even uh, laws and, 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 and specific details as to how they were to eat and prepare food and such like that throughout the week. And now the law gave them a lot of those details on how to do that. But in addition to that, over the years, Jewish tradition began to implement certain rites and ceremonies that they would do in remembrance of it. And it's always, throughout the Old Testament, God, we see God over and over and over and over again reminding the people of who He is and what He's done for them. 
Over 120 plus times, you can read the statement that God says to a prophet or to his people, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of bondage and slavery to Egypt. I'm the Lord your God who led you through the wilderness to the promised land. He's constantly reminding his people of who he is and who they are in light of him. And this feast is a picture of that. And one of the rites that they did this particular week was every night in the, in the court of the women at the temple, they had these four huge colossal candelabra or menorahs. And each one of those had four huge bowls on them. And it said that they were 75 foot tall, over seven stories tall. All right, so in the court of women in Herod's temple, you have, you have the temple, and then around the temple you have the court of the Israelites or the priest's courtyard. Then there was a gate and steps that led down to the women's courtyard, and the treasury surrounded that. So out in the women's courtyards were these huge candelabra work. And each night, it would say, uh, tradition says that young, young priests or young men coming up in the priesthood would climb ladders and would fill the bowls with oil. And then they would use the, the worn belts and garments of the priests as wicks to light them. So then they would light these huge, huge candles and bowls burning, and it said that it would put off so much light that there was not a courtyard in the city that wasn't illuminated by it. They were that bright. Then in addition to that, whenever they would light these things off, there would be a dance that was associated with it. And then the Levites would play, it said that they would play an innumerable amount of instruments, harps, lyres, flutes, trumpets, and a bunch of things, anything they could think of to make music, and they would sing psalms and praise and dance and sing and it was just a joyous, joyous, joyous celebration of what God did and his faithfulness to the people leading them out of Egypt. And how did he lead them out of Egypt? Egypt? By day, he led by a pillar of cloud, and by night, through the darkness, he led by a pillar of fire. And this is the point of this lighting ceremony, was to remember him leading them by the pillar of fire through the darkness. So then in addition to that, as the morning came closer, it said that at the first rooster crow, Two priests would stand at the gate that leads out of the court of the Israelites, or the priest's courtyard, into the court of women. Two priests would stand there, and at the first rooster crow, they would blow their horn. One long, one short, and one long. Then they would walk down the steps, and they would get down the steps to the tenth step, and then once again, one short, one long, and or one long, one short, and one long. Then they would continue down the steps. They would get to the courtyard, and they would continue doing this through the courtyard to the east gate. They would blow their trumpets and walk through the courtyard to the east gate. They said when they got to the east gate, they would turn their backs to the rising sun and face the temple. And when they faced the temple, they would say and repeat over and over, they would say, we are the Lord's, and our eyes are turned towards the Lord. The interesting thing about that is, is at this point in time in history, their backs are towards the rising sun, the light is the behind, the behind them, and they're looking at the temple, but it's an empty temple they're looking at. They're saying our eyes are turned towards the Lord, but instead of the Shekinah glory of the Lord being in the temple as it was in the days of David, the glory of the Lord is no longer in the temple. It has long since left the temple. And instead of the glory of the Lord being in the temple, which they say they're turning their eyes to and they're looking at, it's out in the courtyard in the person of Jesus. And he's standing there amidst all this tradition, all this remembrance, everything that they're doing to remind themselves of God's faithfulness, but God's faithfulness to his people in the wilderness points directly to Jesus here as the fulfillment and culmination of that faithfulness. And he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So we see the weight of that statement and what it means. I'm sorry, but this thing 
just keeps falling. Forgive me. Is that better? I don't know if it's going to stay, but we'll try. So, so that's a huge, huge, weighty statement that he makes. But he says there, he says to them, in the midst of all this, he says, I'm the light of the world. Now, he's in the temple in Jerusalem at a Jewish feast. And if, if you know anything about the temple, there was, there, was, there was a temple, court of Israelites, there was a court of women, outside of that was the court of men, and then there was the court of the Gentiles, and there was a little wall, it's probably about this high, said it had a little opening. And a Gentile, if you weren't a Jew, you couldn't cross that. If you crossed that wall, it was death. I mean, you, you, were, you were to be killed on the spot if you crossed that wall as a Gentile. That's how strict it was. They were Jewish, God's holy, pap- holy people. If you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile, and you're out. You cross this threshold right here, you're dead. But here Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. It was only the Israelites that God led through the wilderness. It wasn't the rest of the world that he led. It was only the Israelites. But here he's saying, I'm the light of the world. Then he says, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. But he says, whoever follows me. It's not just enough to see Jesus, to read about him, to hear about him, but you have to follow Jesus. If the Israelites would have just stayed where they're at and just watched this pillar of fire just move off in the distance and cease to follow it, they're going to eventually be in darkness. The light is going to go ahead, and they're going to be walking in darkness. You have to follow it. Charles Spurgeon says to follow him means to commit yourselves to him, to believe him and yield yourselves up, obediently doing what he bids and implicitly accepting what he says. You must have no other master, master, he says. Follow him. Yield yourselves up to it. Whatever we want to do, yield that over to Jesus and follow him. It means that if we're following him, we're not following anyone else. Certainly not following ourselves. But if you're coming here to church, you shouldn't be following a pastor at this church. Don't follow a Brandon, don't follow a Brandon Bactel or a Brian Tate or Dick Patterson. You should be following Jesus. But as the church, you come underneath the authority of the church. But you're following Jesus because Jesus is head of the church. Always follow Jesus and no one else. Then he says also, if you follow, you will not walk in darkness. You will have the light of life. Much like he said in his statement in chapter 6, he says, I'm the bread of life. If you come to me, you're never going to hunger. You're never going to thirst. You will live forever. I will fulfill everything that you need. John says in chapter 1, verse 4 and 5, he says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So Jesus is saying to the people amidst all this tradition, everything they're doing that is a remembrance of God's faithfulness which points to him. And he says, I'm the light. I'm that which you need. I'm that which you are celebrating. And I'm here. Now one of the most important things that can and should be taken from this is it's not just that if we follow Jesus, we're not going to walk in darkness. But it's implied that if we're not following Jesus... We're walking in darkness. We don't have the light of life if we're not following Jesus. And there's an inherent darkness, and there's an inherent danger in the darkness, is there not? Not just spiritual darkness, but think about physical darkness. There's an inherent danger that is present there. Why? Because you can't see. If you're driving down the road at night in your car in the dark with no headlights on, 
You can't see the hazard that's in front of you. You know something that could possibly be there and come out and run into the road and you hit or you could go off the road. You could lose your way. You could get into the wreck. But if you're driving at night without your headlights on, we would agree. I'll agree. That's pretty foolish. There's other adjectives that I could describe someone that drives through the night with no headlights. But because of the hazard that's there, we're aware of it. But there's a proper fear that is instilled in us in being aware of that danger. And because of that proper fear, we take actions to preserve ourselves. one. But what do we do when we're driving at night? We turn the headlights on so that we can see what's in front of us. And it's not something, it, it does us no good to shine lights out to the side or behind us. It's always before us. The light shines what's before us as we're moving forward because of the dangers that we know that's there. Now, who in here is scared of the dark? One honest person, too, okay. I'll admit, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid of the dark. I'm going to rephrase that. I'm afraid of that. I'm frightened by what I can't see in the dark. But I would say that I have a clinical fear of what I cannot see in the dark. I, just, I really do. I'm 33 years old, and I just admitted I'm afraid of the dark. But, <clears throat> but honestly, I fear what I can't see. Because if I can't see it, I can't, it's hard for me to do anything about it. You know, you're not going to catch me out in the woods without a flashlight, I promise you. I've got thousands of flashlights. I've got two, in my, two or three in my truck. I've got several in my house. I've got a flashlight because I'm not going to end up in the dark without some sort of light. But there's even times where I can leave the house during the day, especially now whenever it gets dark in the evening. You know, when I come home, there's no lights on. And if you've been to my house at night with no lights on, it's dark. It's really dark. And it doesn't happen all the time, but I can come home, I can pull up in my truck, I can get out of my truck, and be walking from my truck to my front door, you know, and be good. Just going, all of a sudden, you get this eerie feeling. And I know everybody in here, at some point in your life, you've got that eerie feeling. Like something is watching you. Something is out there that you can't see, and it sees you. You know, you just kind of get this eerie feeling, and you hear a little rustling in the bleach. You know? I'm talking about scares, scares the cool out of your walk, you know? And all of a sudden... You know, you're not running, but you're walking faster to get to the door. Then you get to the door, and you can't find the keyhole. It's in the same spot it's always been, but for some reason you can't find it. And flush for it, and then and all of a sudden, what, what that proper fear that should be there, that should tell you, bring your phone out and shine a light. Get the light out of my truck that I know is there. The proper fear says that there is things in place that I can grab a hold of, and I won't have to be afraid. I can see what's in the dark. But instead, a proper fear, I get over there because it's only 30 feet. I mean, what's going to happen between my truck and the front door? But irrational fear tells me that rustling that I hear that's coming closer is a wolf. <laughs> I know that there's not a wolf within 2,000 miles of my house that's not in a cage in a, in a zoo somewhere. But for some reason, irrationally, I'm frightened by what I can't see. All of a sudden, it's a wolf because wolves freak me out. And I'm sitting here trying to get in the door, and then I got the storm door behind me, and you know I just can't do it. And then all of a sudden, bam, it's right there, and it's my dog. Woodrow. <laughs> <laughs> bark or something you know let me know it's you <clears throat> i miss my other dog he would have been at the door of the truck and if he's cool i knew everything around the house was cool but the point is this is that there is a hazard inherent in the darkness and we can't see it i find it interesting too that uh, that we humans were the dominant species you know on this planet um, God created it to be that way. He purposed us. He gave us dominion over his creation. Every living thing, creeping, crawling thing. But I find it interesting that every other, pretty much every other creeping, crawling thing just about in this world can see in the dark. But he created us without the capacity to see in the dark. He created in us a need for light to see through the darkness. 
and even still, at creation, you know, light was the very first thing created. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was void and formless, and darkness hovered over the face of the deep. And then God said, let there be light. And he created light to shine through the darkness. And then it says that he separated the light from the day. And then in addition to that, he created two lights to rule over the darkness. The greater light to rule over the day and the lesser light to rule over the night. So he created even more light to rule over the darkness. Even from the onset, light overcomes darkness. It shines through it. It breaks through it. And he created us to need that light. We can't see in the dark. We need a light to see in the dark. We need that light to see the dangers and the hazards that are there. Not only that, if we don't have a light, we can't see where we're going. John says in twelve thirty. Uh, John says in chapter twelve, verse thirty-five. He says, uh, "The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going." Job twelve twenty-five says, "They grope in the dark without light." Ever do that? You just trying to find and feel your way through the dark because you don't know the way. But the point is this, is that we need a light to see through darkness. And that's physical darkness, but more importantly, we need a light to see through the spiritual darkness because we live in a dark age. So what does this mean for us? Once we get, grab a hold of this, that we need light to see in the darkness because we can't see, what does it mean for us here? <clears throat> what do we do about this? Charles Spurgeon said this, he says, Do any of us shun the light? He says, I know some men slight the privileges they ought to prize. They do not want to know him whose going forth is as the light of the morning when, he's, when the sun rises. They never read the Bible or search into the history, the prophecy, and the promises. They do not like an earnest ministry. They have a sort of happy-go-lucky style of religion. They take, on, they take in whatever anybody else tells them. They attend their place of worship as a matter of habit and observe all the proprieties of fashion. He's describing a person who just doesn't want the light. That person, he's describing a person that's here, that comes, that takes in every bit of all the proprieties, everything that, that, that they can take from it, but they give nothing back. They don't want the light, but they want what the light can give them but they're not plugged in. They don't do anything for it. And then he continues. He says, um, but as to doing right or seeking the light of God, they seldom or never give it a thought. They do not count it desirable. Too much of the light of God could expose much that would not bear inspection. The saying is they don't want the light. People, a lot of people don't want the light because of what it exposes. We all have, we have dark places in our life that we don't want people seeing, that we think we can hide from the world. And we can, most of the time, we can hide from other people. We can hide it from ourselves a lot of times. We think we're hiding it from God. But he sees all because he's in all. But we don't want the light because it shines, but it, it exposes those things. I mean, think of, think of the darkness. Think of the, the, the things that transpire at night. In days when I was living in darkness, when I was not in the light. Every wrong, bad thing that I ever did, generally I did at night, in the darkness, because you can't see it. John says, uh, 
John says in chapter 3, verse 20, he says, For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. Then he says, But. He says, But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. And there's people that don't like it because it exposes, but there are some that come to the light so that the things that they do can be clearly seen. So that it can be seen that his works have been carried out in God. Now those that have been called out of darkness, that truly have been called out of darkness into his marvelous light, Jesus calls them now the light of the world. So the light of the world, Jesus, who claims I'm the light of the world, now says, if you follow me, you're not going to walk in the darkness. And then now, you're not just going to be that. You're not just going to take that from me. You're not just going to walk in darkness anymore. You're going to have life, but you're going to be the light of the world. It's the only I am statement that we're going to talk about that, reciproc- that reciprocates in us. He is the light of the world. If we're following him, we're not in darkness, and we are now, we have become the light of the world. And there's a huge, 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 huge responsibility in that. Church, we can't miss that right there. If you claim to be in the light, if you claim to be a follower of Jesus, if you have your salvation, I'm saved, I'm good, better be good because you're light in the world. And if you're not shining, then it stands the reason you're in darkness. But then Jesus says in Matthew um, chapter 5, he says, you are, light in, you are the light of the world. He says, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. It says, in the same way, let your light shine before others. Let your light shine before others, he says. You're the light of the world, let it shine before others. But then he says, why? Why do we let it shine before others? He says, so that they may see your good works. What if he just stopped right there? Let, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. Do I... Do I want to let my light shine so that you can see my good works and then I get accolades from you and it makes me feel good because my light's shining and y'all think I'm all great? Wouldn't that be horrible for me to stand here and shine my light so that I get a good feeling from y'all? I get a good, good sermon, Cody. Shame on me if that ever enters my heart and I want the Holy Spirit to convict me of it, pull me off the stage and never put me up here again if my light is shining so that I get an attaboy from somebody who hears it. But Jesus continues there. He says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and what give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Our light shines so that people can see the goodness in us and then they see that goodness and they give glory to God for it. If we're seeking glory for ourselves, we're not shining a light. We're just talking really loud. Ephesians 5, 8, Paul says, uh, says for, for at one time you were in darkness, or no, no, I'm sorry, for at one time you were darkness. Paul says you were darkness. You're not just walking in darkness. At one point in time, you were darkness. At one point in time in my life, I was darkness. Not just in it, I was it. Now, I got saved, you know, when I was a kid. According to this, before I was saved, before the old was gone and the new came, I was a little sinner that was darkness. My mom may not think so, but Paul says that you were darkness, not just in darkness, walking darkness, you were darkness. But then he says, now you are the light of the Lord. And he says, walk as children of light. Once you were, now you're not. Because you're no longer darkness, you're light, walk as children of light. 
Then he says, therefore, the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. He says the fruit of light. Fruit is, fruit is external. Fruit doesn't grow in tri- inside of a tree. Fruit grows outside of a tree. It's external. You see the fruit. And you can see if the fruit is good or bad, whether you're going to eat it or you're not going to eat it. But fruit is ex- external. So it's something that is to be seen on the outside. So he says there, if fruit, he says, let walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. It's found in all that is good and right and true. Not everything that is bad, wrong, and false. Fruit of light is found in good, right, and true. Charles Spurgeon says again, he says, In his people, Christ still shines forth in even a brighter light than in the days of his earthly sojourn. He has 10,000 reflectors instead of 12. 10,000 times 10,000 tongues proclaim his gospel. And 10,000 times 10,000 hearts burn and blaze with the light of the divine word. He says 10,000 reflectors. And we know today, in today's world, I mean, that's millions of reflectors. There's a couple hundred likely reflectors should be in this room here. He says, Jesus goes. He tells his disciples, it's better that I go. Because if Jesus was the only one that was still, if he was the light of the world and he's still the only light that's still here, he's not going to, he's going to be here or there. He's going to be surrounded by people here or there. He can't be everywhere at once if Jesus in bodily form is on earth. He had to go. But the light of the world went, so how does the light remain? It remains in us. And we're the light of the world so that we can reflect him everywhere. So we're a reflection of Jesus everywhere we go. We should be. But now, have you ever, have you ever looked at a mirror in the dark and saw something looking back at you? Likely not. The one thing required for a mirror to operate and reflect as it is tended to do is light. It has to have light. A mirror is not going to reflect in the darkness. It has to have light. So if we're a reflection of light without the light, there's not going to be any reflection. And Paul says in Philippians 2, he says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Would you agree we live in a crooked and twisted generation? We live in a dark age. And light has to shine through it. I mean, we are the light. We are what shows this world Jesus and who he is. And how do we do that? How do we reflect properly the light? Some things that we don't do there, Paul says, you know, don't, don't grumble and dispute. If I'm grumbling and disputing, my light dims. If I'm arguing and fighting, my light dims. If I'm getting angry because I feel someone is saying I'm wrong simply because they disagree with me on something, my light dims. If I'm fighting and arguing and I'm lashing out on social media because I'm mad about something that's going on, my light dims. We should be exposing those things and not covering those things up or adding to those things. But we shine as lights in the world. And how do we do that? It's not an easy thing in this dark world because we're surrounded by sin. We're still sinners ourselves. It's not always easy. It's not easy to let our light shine. So how do we do that? Jesus gives the promise. When he sends his disciples out in the Great Commission, you know, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He doesn't just say, you got it, go do it. I'm going to go to the Father. Y'all can handle it. 
he gives them a promise right after he sends them out. He's not going to send them out on their own. He sends them out and he says, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Twelve men on their own couldn't do what needed to be done. And God and Jesus knew that. So he tells them and exhorts them and encourages them, behold, I'm with you to the end of the age. I'm going to be with you. You're not alone in this. If a mirror can't reflect anything without light, if Jesus is the light of the world and he say we're light in the world, we're reflecting him, we have to have that light. So is it us shining? It's not. It's Jesus shining through us. We don't shine. Jesus shines. So what do we have to do? If we don't have to worry about shining bright, how do we shine? What we have to do is keep our mirror clean. You know, I read that the, the Hubble Space Telescope that they would have to, uh, they would polish the mirrors that were on it. And sometimes it said they would polish some for months, even years, polishing the same mirror over and over and over, keeping it clean so that it could properly do, to where it could reach out to the farthest reaches of the universe and take pictures of the dimmest light. It would polish for years, keeping those mirrors clean. So we should be keeping our mirrors clean. How do we keep our mirrors clean? Paul says to hold fast. Hold fast to the word of life. How do we keep our mirrors clean? We hold fast to the word. We get in the word. We read God's word. Because God's word is a lamp into our feet, a light into our path, it says. So if we're going to clean our mirror and keep it clean, we do that by staying connected, by reading by reading the word, we're in fellowship with the light. We're in communion with the light. We have his spirit. In Acts 1.8, he, he tells the disciples, he tells them that you are my witnesses in all Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and all the ends of the earth. You can't be, they can't be his witnesses without him. So what does he say before that? He tells them, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Jesus doesn't tell the disciples, he doesn't tell us to do anything that he is not promising to be with us and empowering us to do anyways. A mirror can't reflect without light. So we need to keep a mirror clean. And if you're here this morning and you're on the other side of that, if you would say that you are not following Jesus and you're walking in darkness, Understand the inherent danger in that. And spiritually, if you're walking in darkness, the danger that is present is death. And if you have questions and you want to talk, you can find me. Apparently, I'm the only pastor here this morning. Everybody's in Edgewood. But, <laughs> but find me or find someone who you can see has a light that's shining and start a conversation because it's the most important conversation you will ever have. Because there is an ever-present danger in the darkness. And if you can't see it, one day it's just it's going to be there. And that danger ends in death. Let me pray for you. Lord, we thank you for this morning. Lord, God, thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you that you've, you've come into the world, Lord, as light. Lord, you've, you've, you've promised, Lord, that if we, simply, if we follow you, Lord, that we won't be in darkness, Lord. We will have the light of life, Lord. I thank you for the responsibility that comes with that, Lord. And I pray, Holy Spirit, you just teach us, Lord, as a church, Lord, to, to shine, God. Just teach us, show us in your word. Exhort us, encourage us, Lord, always, Lord, just how to shine, to keep our mirrors clean so that we properly reflect all that you are, Lord, so that we don't confuse this world 
any longer, Lord, but that you can be clearly seen in us, Lord. 